TechLawTracker.com. Welcome to Tech Law Tracker, Episode 6. I've just got four bills for you today. It'll be a quick episode. And these bills are a big thanks to BillTrack50.com. They had a blog post about the Internet of Things and privacy issues. And in this amazing blog post was a wonderful list of bills in different states um, having to do with this. And I'm actually going to use the same blog post for the next episode where I have a couple more bills already that I want to look at. Um, But anyway, I will totally post a link on techlawtracker.com where you can check all those out. The first two bills are actually about net neutrality, um, and they are interesting because they are both resolutions on net neutrality. They're not proposed legislation. But these bills have very similar language to the language included in New York Omnibus Bills section on net neutrality, if you remember from my previous episode where I mentioned that. Um, The key words were that... The ISPs cannot block or slow down lawful traffic. And I'll just read a couple of quotations here. Broadband providers shall not impair or downgrade lawful internet traffic on the basis of content, application, or service, or use of a non-harmful device. Also, broadband providers shall not favor some lawful internet traffic over any other lawful internet traffic in exchange for consideration of any kind. I didn't even say what state this is from. This is from the state of Illinois. But there's two bills here. One of them is from Ohio, and one of them is from Illinois, and they're very similar bills. So right now I'm reading from the state of Illinois' bill. To continue, the the state of Illinois supports net neutrality as a principle that underpins a fast, fair, and open Internet for consumers and businesses to ensure equal access to lawful content by prohibiting paid prioritization, throttling, and blocking. So this is basically the language I've seen in every bill on this subject. Um, It seems like this is the standard of of what to include when you mean to support the principle of net neutrality. However, this being a resolution means that it's not going to become a state law, even if it does pass. I think this is basically like a PR move. And if it passes, it gets submitted to the president and the U.S. House and Senate. And I'm sure there are people who would argue that this really does something, but I'm just wondering if they really wanted to pass something, why wouldn't they just pass this sort of thing as an actual bill in Illinois, saying that ISPs are required to do this in Illinois? If anything, it would have more effect in showing how much the state of Illinois really cares about this and would have the extra benefit of actually having an effect in Illinois. But then again, maybe the senator who sponsored this bill, um, that's Michael Hastings of Springfield, Illinois, knew that he couldn't get something like this passed into an actual law, so maybe he thought it was worth it to settle for at least a resolution that would show some support. I don't know. Those are my thoughts. Uh, Email me if you're from Illinois or if you know Illinois politics, techlawtracker at gmail.com. A little background on Michael Hastings. In 2008, Hastings joined Johnson & Johnson's biosurgery sales division in Chicago, serving hospitals, healthcare facilities, and surgeons. Hastings was recognized and awarded as a top-tier employee. That's interesting. 
uh, just some random stuff I pulled from his bio. And also another random note listed in Associated Representatives was someone named Margot McDermott. Uh, I always think it's cool to find people with my name who spell it the same way I do. So she's an Illinois State House rep in... She's from Springfield, too, so I haven't really looked further into her, but I thought her name is pretty cool. Anyway, there's another bill very similar to this one that I just read from, read to you about in Ohio that basically does the same thing. It expresses support for the principle of net neutrality and urges the president and Congress to protect it. So I think all of these sorts of bills were a response to that FCC vote that happened not too long ago. And again, it was the same net neutrality language. Lawful content can't be blocked. This one in Ohio specifically mentioned the open internet rules of 2015 that were considered net neutrality. And that was what the FCC adopted back during the Obama administration. And this bill goes on to list the following three things as part of those open internet rules of 2015 ensuring that consumers and businesses have access to fair, fast, fair, and open internet by imposing three bright line rules. One, broadband providers shall not block access to lawful content, applications, services, or non-harmful devices. Two, broadband providers shall not impair or degrade lawful internet traffic on the basis of content, application, or service, or use of non-harmful devices. And three, broadband providers shall not favor some lawful internet traffic over other lawful internet traffic in exchange for consideration of any kind. So um, that's the general language. I did think it was interesting. You know, they always specify lawful internet traffic, which does make sense on a legislative level. But at the same time, it makes me wonder how easily something could be turned into unlawful internet traffic, which would... If, if you could pass a law that something that's actually innocuous is unlawful, which is, I guess, relatively easy to do, then all of a sudden, assuming the open internet laws or open internet policy came back into existence, you would still technically get to fit under the principle of net neutrality and say that you're being net neutral even if a law was passed to make something that shouldn't be illegal, illegal. I mean, these are nitty-gritty hypothetical questions, but just thought that was interesting zooming out because this might be the third bill I've read at the state level about net neutrality, um, and they all, they all use that specific language. So it seems like that's how it's, it's encoded in law, the, the principle of net neutrality. Also... The New York bill is the only one I've read so far that was actually proposed legislation, whereas these other two are just resolutions. Um, but either way, there's definitely been a trend of states picking up on the stuff after that FCC vote happened. Um, and I wonder if it'll go anywhere. Um, I wonder if other states will attempt to do more hard legislation. And I'm, I'm really going to be curious to see if the New York one passes, because that would actually have an effect in New York State. Anyway, that's my quick net neutrality thing. On to my next bill, which is a Hawaii bill. And this is interesting. It's more on the broadband access, 
logistical expansion of internet front. Um, this bill is HB Hawaii Bill 2651. Um, and it does have a partner bill in their Senate. And I'll just get on with the content of the bill. So basically, this is a bill to expand wireless internet around Hawaii. And it says that, you know, this investment will dramatically increase the connection speeds and the availability and variety of services and drive growth and jobs and gross domestic product while providing critical a critical platform for the Internet of Things. I've seen that word being thrown around a lot that will enable the realization of the significant economic value from smart communities and other economic activity. So having internet access will solve all the problems of the world, but it actually will be great over there. They're specifically focusing on wireless access. Also, it notes in the legislative intent section, the state's goal of developing more than 80,000 technology-related jobs, paying an annual salary of more than $80,000 by 2030. So, become the next, have another Silicon Alley situation like we have in New York, I guess. That's, that's the idea. Also, this investment to support infrastructure will benefit the state's consumers without any public infrastructure investment. They're saying that they want to just make it easier for the internet providers to do that themselves um, without spending any public money on it directly. It goes on to say, the wireless providers need a reasonable and reliable process to deploy wireless facilities, and the process must include, one, access to public rights-of-way and the ability to utilize government-owned infrastructure in the rights-of-way. And as I mentioned on the last episode... Rights of way are basically being able to use telephones and making the agreements that you need to make to tell to use the telephone poles and other maybe general electricity line poles that have been set up over the years, making those agreements that have to be made to also put internet lines on them or to put wireless facility distribution on them. Number two on this list is the process has to include a reasonable and uniform cost recovery based rates and fees for the permitting and deployment of small wireless facilities in rights of way and on public infrastructure, including state or county owned utility poles. And number three, a reasonable and uniform process for deploying the facilities on public infrastructure. So, the bill goes on to have tons of definitions of various elements of this process. So things like what is a small wireless facility and what is a right-of-way and all that fun stuff. The bill text specifies that this chapter or this bill, if uh, it goes through, will only apply to activities of a wireless provider to deploy small wireless facilities and to modified or replaced utility poles associated with small wireless facilities. So they wanted to specify that this will not expand to be relevant to um, wired broadband and stuff like that. Um, so there's definitions about what it means to 
uh, be a, have a decorative pole in a historic district because they want to make sure that if telephone poles were put up in an area with a particular aesthetic that when they put up new ones, it's not going to look out of place. Um, there's things like as detailed as what a micro wireless facility means. It means a small wireless facility having dimensions either no larger than 24 inches in height, 15 inches in width, and 12 inches in depth, or 24 inches in length, 15 inches in width, and 12 inches in height. I'm just going to guess that those are the standard dimensions. I hope so, because if they're not, you might be out of luck. Anyway, they also specify what a right-of-way means. Uh, it means an area on, below, or above a public roadway, highway, street, sidewalk, alley, utility easement, or similar pro property. Small versus micro. A small wireless facility, as opposed to a micro one, means that each wireless provider's anten antenna could fit within an enclosure of no more than six cubic, cubic feet in volume. And all the other wireless equipment associated with that little facility is no more than 28 cubic feet in volume. On to the permitting process for these rights of way because the idea is that internet service providers or other companies will build these wireless facilities on their own. The permitting process seems like they're trying to make it as easy as possible. Pages 14, 15, and 16 explain that process and it seems like they basically just want to make the applications go quickly it says that if the local county takes more than 60 days to answer an application for a permit to build a small wireless facility, then it's going to get auto-approved. There's a list of only six reasons that it could be allowed to be denied. These are things like building codes, interfering with safety equipment, and making sure it's good. Uh, it's all clear with the Americans with Disabilities Act, so I guess that it doesn't obstruct anything. Also, uh, it specifies there can only be a $100 Maximum maximum of a hundred dollar application fee, and if there's more than five wireless facilities being applied for to be built, it can't be more than fifty dollars per facility. Basically, what I'm picturing in my head is uh, small boxes, essentially that can be put on telephone poles that could expand broadband wi wireless broadband. Or that's what I'm picturing. So if you think otherwise, let me know. But based on this whole cubic feet and inches and how much the wires have to fit in that space, that's what I'm imagining. Email me otherwise, techlawtracker at gmail.com. Moving on, states and counties are going to be allowed to issue bonds for specific purposes like paying for the removal of abandoned or improperly maintained wireless facilities, restoration of rights of way. I'm not really sure how money from a bond will help with that but I'm, I'm sure there's a way, and recuperation of old fees that haven't been paid in over a year. And um, the, the uh, county cannot issue more than a $200 bond per small wireless facility. And if one wireless provider has a bunch of these small wireless facilities in the same area or county, the total bond can't be over $10,000. Um, so that seems to sum up everything as far as I can tell in terms of making it easily accessible for ISPs to build small wireless facilities to expand wireless broadband rather than expanding corded broadband. After this, they have a really detailed section on what constitutes a rural area with regulations over how many dwellings per acre, 
etc., and this in including small farms and, and saying that golf courses can be included in a rural, er rural area. Also says that in addition to the uses listed in this subsection, rural districts shall include geothermal resources exploration and geothermal resources development as defined under section 182.1 and wireless communications antenna as defined under section 205-4.5A18 as permissible uses. I'm not 100% sure why these classifications are in here, but maybe I missed something in how these relate to the wireless facilities, or maybe this is like a very low-key rider to the end of this bill that's trying to reclassify different areas of Hawaiian land. But yeah, that's interesting. If you are from Hawaii and rural versus urban classifications matter, let me know. I mean, I'm sure they matter in terms of all sorts of things. And maybe it even matters in terms of rights of way. But I couldn't quite get that. The interesting thing for me about this bill is that it's 100% focused on wireless deployment um, of broadband internet as opposed to expanding wired internet. They really focus a lot on tourism in the legislative intent, not just ordinary business, although it also mentioned that stuff. And from their perspective, this is going to be very helpful in the overall economy of, the, of Hawaii. I'm assuming it makes sense for them because Hawaii probably has a lot of really spread out places. And like I mentioned on a couple of previous episodes, there's a big debate whether it makes more sense to deploy wired internet or... It could be cheaper to do wireless, but then there's more easily interfere. There's more easy interference from weather and other stuff like that. Um, compared to the New York bill, which was all about broadband wired internet, leaving Wi-Fi to the individual, so that would be small range Wi-Fi. Maybe this is just cheaper. Probably that's probably what it is, and probably faster to build too. But anyway. Different states take different approaches. Also, in other news, the, the, the other cool thing about this bill is this might be the first bill I've actually looked at on Tech Law Tracker for which there has been actual movement, and it may actually get somewhat, somewhere or even get passed kind of soon because it seems like it's been sent to a lot of committees. There have been a lot of discussions about it in each committee. The last thing that happened to it was Friday, February, fr Friday, February 16th, when I'm recording this, um, where it was scheduled to be heard again by the CPC committee, and that's going to be on Wednesday the 21st at 2 o'clock. So I'm going to check up on that and give you guys some updates on the next episode. So that's cool. Just exciting to be reading something that might actually go somewhere, because who knows with some of these bills. And this bill also has a companion bill in the Senate, which seems to have gone even further and it's had discussions and and amendments. That's that's the method for most bills is you submit identical versions in the House and the Senate. Uh, and that is SB 2704. And, of course, I will list all these bills on techlawtracker.com. But, yeah, the Senate bill is going to the WAM committee, which I think stands for Ways and Means. Fun stuff. So, uh, the last bill I'm going to talk to you today about is from Massachusetts. So, we're back over here on the eastern eastern side. This is MAS-179, which means it's a Senate bill in Massachusetts. 
This bill is called an act relative to the cybersecurity of the Internet of Things and other smart devices. This is a very short bill, and it's basically just a bill that's telling, that's, well, it's from saying that the state legislature wants the Massachusetts Department of Consumer Affairs and Business Regulation to write new policy protecting the personal information that is transmitted through devices that would be considered part of the Internet of Things. So it defines those Internet of Things devices as, quote, an internet working system of physical devices embedded with electronics, software, sensors, unique identifiers, and network connectivity that are able to connect, collect, and transfer personal information over a network without requiring human-to-human -human or human-to-computer interaction. So basically, the bill says, um, we, the we the legislature, or rather, the Massachusetts Senate would like the Massachusetts Department of Consumer Affairs and Business Regulation to enact some new policy that would protect the this personal information. Um, and it goes into a lot of detail explaining what that personal information is, but th that's the general idea. And it's only one page long, so if you want to read it, you totally can, but it's it's just... it's. You get the idea. But the interesting thing about this bill is, for me, in the context of that speech by Noam that I read in the last episode, episode five, where um, Noam was talking in this speech at some Columbia University conference about legislation being a good starting point, but that rulemaking should be left to the agencies or departments. Uh, which could be more agile and change more more quickly. Um, so I could see the reason for that, because if you make a law about this stuff and specifically say exactly what, um, which information or how it's meant to be protected in the legislation, that can take years and years and years to change, whereas theoretically a agency can change it faster. So it seems like that's the kind of theory that the Massachusetts State Senate is working with in this case. Um, so they're saying, we're the legislature and we want a law in the, in, on the books of Massachusetts to say this information should be protected, but we don't know exactly how we should go about protecting that. So that is one way to do it. Um, we'll see how that turns out and we'll see what happens with that bill. And last but certainly not least, there's a new segment here in town called Letters to Tech Law Tracker. So we got a question from Joe Dropkin on, on the bill called New York A00506. And just a little background on that, I discussed it in episode two. And A00506 in New York is the Computer Spyware Protection Act. And that act was all about trying to make illegal a lot of the tactics that spyware uses to infect your computer. Like a thousand pop-up windows that you can't even use your keyboard anymore, or misleading logos to make you think you're on a familiar website, um, misleading emails, phishing attempts, all those sorts of things. Because the main idea there is that they're not technically illegal yet, 
Um, so there's no way to prosecute someone who's been using those methods listed in the bill to propagate spyware. So anyway, I'll just read you the super cool question. Um, how does this impact companies that want to do phishing simulations to test and verify that their users are following company protocol and not just clicking on anything that comes to them in an email? So I thought that was a super interesting question because companies definitely do this all the time. We've all gotten fake phishing attempts um, from our IT departments that try to trick us into basically just try to see how gullible everyone is. Um, and yeah, so I, I was actually speculating on the trademark front of this because it's specifically made an Ill illegal in the bill. If it passes asterisk, um, specifically made illegal in the bill to use someone else's trademark, trademarked logo or images to deceive someone into believing they're on a familiar website or on a legitimate website. Um, so what if a company doing this test phishing uh, use another company's logo to, to make someone believe that they were on their own website um, or on the website of that other company or that they would be clicking through to that website? Because um, I imagine a company doing test phishing wouldn't always use their own logo or their own intellectual property. So maybe there's a case to be made there if you actually trick an employee into believing they were almost fake scammed by, who knows, maybe Adobe, maybe you tried to put together a fake logo for Bank of America or something like that. Seems like interesting stuff. Maybe there would be a case to be made there if this bill passed. Otherwise, um, if it was a test fish, I guess it wouldn't technically damage the computer or steal any personal info. And even if there was some computer overload, they wouldn't be really permanently damaging their very own computers at the company. So maybe the company wouldn't be liable in that way, which was another key part of the bill. The damages that someone would be able to sue for uh, would be the physical damages to the computer. So anyway, those are just my initial thoughts based on that question. And who knows, every time we have a new law, there's a whole lot of new stuff to speculate on. I'll definitely be keeping updated near the end of this legislative session, which won't be for a while, on what bills I've looked at are actually getting anywhere. Because that's when all the action really happens. It's, it's not going to happen for a while. And then at the end, there's a whole list of, of bills that suddenly get voted on. Thanks again for writing into Tech Law Tracker. Anybody who has any thoughts or questions or things you want to know more about or uh, that I should cover on the show... Email the show at techlawtracker at gmail.com. And also visit techlawtracker.com for all the show notes. If you want to stream a show online instead of downloading it to your phone, all your Tech Law Tracker needs at techlawtracker.com. And that's about it for this episode number six of Tech Law Tracker. But before I go, I want to give a huge thank you and shout out to This Week in Law. Denise Howell was so nice to invite me on the show, and it was so fun to be on. I was on This Week in Law, episode 411, Tesla's in Space. Um, it was just a wonderful, overall, huge fangirl moment for me. 
because I've been listening to them for a little while, and you should totally check out This Week in Law if you don't already listen to them. And I know I mentioned their coverage of net neutrality already, but they're just a great show for everything, whether it's copyright law or trademark or any and all technology and law-related things. I can't thank them enough for having me on. I hope you all have a wonderful day, evening, weekend, morning, whenever you're listening. I hope it's good. And you can catch me on the next episode, number seven, where I'll be more focused on privacy legislation in different states. This has been Tech Law Tracker with Margot Cruz. Tech Law Tracker. Tracker.